Hey, Sweat Kingsgrove, it's really good to be back with you. Um, if you're wondering where I've been, uh, since uh, Bankstown moved to the morning, it's been a little trickier. We've had to rotate me around uh, the congregations, but I'm back uh, for the, pretty much the whole month of June as well. Um, we'll be looking at the book of Matthew. Um, I haven't caught up on all of the Judges series, but um, I trust that you've had a good time looking at Old Testament. I did catch most of Carrie's sermon last week, and wasn't that a treat, hey? If you were here last week, um, I just heard so many people rave about how good it was, and so I hopped on this morning just to have a listen, and I caught most of it, and um, it was so good to have our brother not just back from um, where, he, where they've been on mission, but also to have him preach to us. So that's been fantastic. So I hope you've enjoyed the book of Judges with um, Pastor Marshall and, and Kerry last week. Um, we'll be taking a break, going back to Matthew now, um, and so that's what we'll be doing. Uh, and uh, as Stephen prayed, Alpha is going really well. Please continue to pray for it. And I'm really looking forward to weekend away because I'm not speaking, so I get to spend the whole weekend hanging out with you guys. Um, it's going to be fantastic. So I hope you can come, and it's not too late to register. I think we've got two more days, so please come to Weekend Away. Um, it'll be a really great time. Okay, enough admin. So between last Sunday and this Sunday, today, we've had uh, a change of government, yeah? Got a new Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister uh, Anthony Albanese, and one of the things that have come out from Anthony's story is, of course, his really humble beginnings, yeah? They, he, he was raised by a single mom in kind of, you know, inner suburb Sydney, lived in housing commission place. And, and we Australians, right, we love that people can be like that, the underdog, the relatability of our leaders. And so we like that, you know, we can call him Albo, yeah? Now, you know that that's not the case in the U.S., right? In the U.S., politicians are more about how they're different to us. So if you remember when Donald Trump ran for president the first time, his message was really this, vote for me because I'm really, really, really rich. Yeah? Now, let me just tell you a little bit how rich Donald Trump really is. Um, he claims that he has $10 billion worth of wealth, and it's probably not too far off the mark. Well, whatever the case, he is definitely wealthier than all of the other US president candidates in history combined. So just in terms of properties, he has got his penthouse on the top of Trump Towers. The design is supposed to mirror the Versailles Palace in France. It's covered in marble, in gold. Doors are made out of gold. It's worth $100 million. And then, of course, his resort property in Florida. It's called Mar-a-Lago. 58 bedrooms, 33 bathrooms, 12 fireplaces, a spa, a swimming pool, a tennis court, a croquet court and a golf course just minutes away. He has his own Boeing 757 plane. Its seatbelt buckles are made out of gold. He plus, plus, he has other, another smaller jet. He has three helicopters, numerous luxury cars, Rolls, Ferraris. He has golf courses. He has casinos. All right, the message of Trump's campaign is, vote for me because I'm not like you. I'm not like you. I'm what you want to be. I'm a great American, and so only I can make America great again. When we look at Jesus, of course, the contrast couldn't be greater, right? This is not what we see. Though Jesus is God, become a man from the majestic realms of heaven itself. He is the creator with all the power of God at his disposal. And even though he, when he was tempted, 
if you remember all the way back to those early chapters in Matthew, he was offered the world. And though he had just preached to thousands on the mountainside, what we see of Jesus is he doesn't stay up there. Not in heaven, not even on the mountain where he preached. He came down from the mountain and he came down into the valley of our everyday lives where he immediately faced all that our world was and all that our world still is. And so if you're here today and you feel in some way that you are in the valley, guess what? Jesus wants to meet you there right now. Let me pray and let's get into Matthew 8. Lord Jesus, we pray that this morning, as we open up your words in Matthew's account, that we might really come face to face with you. I pray especially for those who are in the valleys and for the rest of us who may be not in the valleys now, we've been there before or it's going to come again. I pray that you would help us meet Jesus. And I pray that he would impact us in this encounter. Amen. Uh, let me just catch you up on the story so far. It's been a while since we've been in Matthew, a couple of months. Matthew's gospel, helpfully, you can remember, it's divided into five major teaching sections. And I think that's deliberate. Matthew loves the Old Testament, right? It's written to Jews. And guess what? The first five books of the Old Testament are, for the Jews, the most important. And so Matthew's divided into five major teaching sections. Between each teaching section, that's the columns, you'll see action, okay? So you've got action, teaching, action, teaching. And a helpful way to remember is the action will serve as a bridge towards the teaching sections. Now, we're only early on through Matthew. The first teaching section we actually finished off last time we were in Matthew, and it's the famous Sermon on the Mount, history's most famous sermon. And again, it's Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is sort of echoing Moses, all right? He's like the new Moses, He's giving God's new people a template of life in relationship with God in his kingdom. All right? That's, again, deliberate parallels to him and Moses. Um, big summary of the Sermon on the Mount. There's three chapters worth. We won't look at it all again. But um, if you want to remember, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom, all right? God's kingship and what it means to belong to God in his kingdom. And the two things to remember is it's an inside-out kingdom and it's an upside-down kingdom. Can you remember that? Inside-out, upside-down, all right? Inside-out, um, the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom person, that for them, right living is much more than just skin deep. It's inside-out. So Jesus will say things like, you know, adultery is not just committing adultery. It's actually looking lustfully at a woman. Murder isn't just killing someone. It's actually having hate. Okay, it's an inside-out kingdom. It's also an upside-down kingdom. Um, it's the nobodies who are the somebodies in Jesus' kingdom. It's the somebodies who become the nobodies. So, you know, Jesus will say right at the beginning, blessed if you're the poor, if you're mourning, if you're hungering. Okay, that's a quick summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so that, that was chapters 5 to 7. Now we're in chapter 8. After this sermon, this amazing history's most famous sermon, it's not surprising that in chapter 8, verse 1, of course, the crowds followed him down the mountain. But, and we're up to point two already, verse 2, straight away, Jesus is confronted with the raw, bleeding, broken suffering in our world. Down from the mountain, immediately into the valleys of human existence. There's three encounters and three healings. And the thing to notice about it is that each one of these people is an outsider. They're all outsiders. So firstly, the leper. Um, by the way, um, at the beginning of verse 2, it's no longer translated in our modern translations, 
But um, in, in older translation, like the King James Version, you'll get a word like behold. All right? It, it, it sort of means immediately, right away. Okay? As soon as Jesus comes down, crowds around him, immediately, behold, right away, he meets this man, this leper. In the Old Testament law, if you had a skin disease, you had to be separated. Quarantine, if you like. Away from the community and therefore away from worship. Now, if you were healed, then you went to the priest to get that healing confirmed. You then get purified, and then after a week or so, you can then return into full fellowship, into community life and worship life. If you were never healed, then of course you could never return. And so if you had something like leprosy, it made you forever unclean. Forever you were unable to be a part of the worshipping community. You were an outcast in every sense of the word. And so here we have Jesus coming down from a mountain. The leper comes to Jesus. Now, can you imagine the scene? The leper coming to Jesus with crowds around Jesus. What would the crowds have done? They probably would have immediately parted. Because they don't want to be near the leper. They don't want to get infected. They don't want to become unclean. And so he comes to Jesus. And he comes with nothing because he is a nothing in their society. And he's so desperate. And we read that he kneels before Jesus. And all he can do is utter a request on his knees. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now notice he didn't say, Lord, if you are able. He's not questioning Jesus' ability. He just doesn't know if Jesus would be willing Now, why would he not think Jesus is willing? Of course, it's because he spent a lifetime with people unwilling to do him anything. Because if anyone did anything for him, they themselves would get contaminated. Of course, they weren't willing. And so he's not assuming that Jesus, this great teacher, healer, would be willing to heal him either. And Lord, if you are willing, he asks. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, look at verse 3. Jesus reached out his hand. And he touched this man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now please don't miss the fact that Jesus touched him. Jesus touched him. Because later we'll see Jesus heal with just a word. He could have done that here. He could have just said be clean and the guy would have been clean. He didn't have to touch him. Why does Jesus touch him? Well, of course it's because Jesus does what is unthinkable to touch a leper. No one else would ever touch a leper. Because if you touched him, you became unclean yourself. But when God comes and meets the leper, he reaches out and he touches him. Sort of reminds me at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 where it says, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. I take it that if God wanted to, he could do a Thanos and make all our tears disappear with a click. But he wants to wipe the tears from our eyes. What a personal touch. I notice Jesus' power, the cure, was immediate. And of course, touching him didn't make Jesus unclean. It went the other way around. Touching him made the man clean. Do you have something in your life, and it's probably something that no one else knows about, something that brings you so much shame that if other people knew, 
you would be untouchable. Well, you know what? Jesus is not turned away by that. There's no sin. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no stain. There's no personal history that makes you untouchable for Jesus. Of course, notice immediately what happens. Afterwards, Jesus tells him in verse 4, get it checked out by the priests. Get it checked out officially. Why? Why does Jesus tell him that? Well, it's because Jesus wanted this man to be received back into full fellowship, to be a full member of the Jewish community again. That's the goal of his healing. Now, we all know the phrase cancel culture, don't we? Cancel culture is pretty brutal at the moment. You say you do anything wrong, even if you're an upstanding celebrity, and gone. One mistake, you're gone. If you're gone, you don't come back. Jesus is not into cancel culture. He is into restoring. Even if you've made millions of mistakes, restoring us, healing us, bringing us back into full fellowship with God and others. Well, that's the first guy. The next encounter is, of course, Jesus with the centurion. Now, he is another outsider, of course. Um, Luke's biography of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke, tells us that this guy is a respected man in the Jewish community. But even so, he is still an outsider because he's a Roman. He is therefore a non-Jew, what's called a Gentile. And we know that there was no Roman garrison or outpost in the town of Capernaum. And so again, this guy has come to see Jesus because he's gone out of the way to come to see Jesus. And he's come because he's desperate. He's desperate. His servant is not only sick, but paralyzed. Not only paralyzed, but in terrible suffering. And like the leper, he calls Jesus Lord. All right? It doesn't matter that he wasn't a diseased untouchable like the leper. He was actually someone with power. Yet he came just as humble, just as desperate, and figuratively at least, on his knees as the one with the untouchable skin disease. Um, verse 7 is really interesting. Jesus says to him, shall I come and heal him? Uh, it's actually... A rhetorical question, right? Jesus knows the answer to that. Uh, but it has a bit of an edge to it. And I don't know if it kind of comes through in the translation quite as much. But the idea that Jesus is getting with those words is something like this. Do you want me to come and heal him, do you? That's sort of what Jesus means. Do you want me to come to heal him, do you? Now, that's a bit puzzling. Why does Jesus say that? Well, it's of course because Jews were forbidden to enter the home of Gentiles. It really was that divided in those days. If you were a Jew, it just was not kosher. You couldn't eat pork and shellfish, which is tragic, really, in my books. But you could also never walk into the house of a Gentile because if you were, you would become unclean. Here was a Gentile asking Jesus for a healing that would, of course, require Jesus to go into his home and heal his Gentile servant. Now, does this mean that Jesus was unwilling to do it? Do you want me to come and heal him, do you? No, 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 of course, it's not because Jesus was unwilling. I mean, remember, he just touched a leper, right? So what Jesus was doing, when Jesus asked a question, you know that Jesus always has the answers, right? When he asked a question, it's not for the sake of him, it's always for the sake of the person he's asking it. He's testing the guy. He's saying to the guy, you do realize what you're asking me to do, Right? Now, now, if the centurion had said, yes, I do, please come, I have no doubt that Jesus would have gone anyway. 
Okay, he would have been criticized. Yeah, we know that people were watching him at that time. He would have been criticized for sure. He would have gone. That's not the reason why Jesus asked. It's not because Jesus was unwilling. He just wanted to really see if this man knew the kind of thing that Jesus would have to do to heal this servant. But what happens next, of course, is so astounding that Jesus is himself is even surprised. Look, look let's read from verse 8. I mean, this is true. He could have responded in so many ways. How does he respond? Verse 8. Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Okay, he knows that. But just say the word, he says, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Um, it takes a lot to surprise and amaze the Son of God. And we only read about it a couple of times, by the way, in the accounts of Jesus. And it only happens with extreme situations. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is amazed because of the extreme lack of faith from his own town. Here we get the opposite. He's amazed because of the extreme faith from an outsider. <clears throat> From an outsider. This Gentile centurion believes that Jesus is able to do more than what Jesus had just done with the leper. Right, it's already amazing that Jesus can heal leprosy with a touch. It's even more amazing that healing can be done by a word over distance. This is before the days of telephone and 5G, right? Nothing happened by remote, by distance. And yet he believed that Jesus, I don't deserve for you to come to my house. I know what an imposition that would be for you as a Jew. So you just say the word and I know you can do it. That is amazing faith. Because this centurion, he knows what it's like to have power and authority. He's capable and powerful. He gives orders and things happen. Yet, you got to hear, yet he is humble enough to know that when it came to his servant's healing, his power and authority meant nothing. And so he had the faith to know that Jesus had all that he lacked. That's a lot of faith. Now, I wonder if there is a situation in your life, big or small, that maybe you're stuck in because you are just too proud to surrender to God. You see, I think some of us here would actually identify much more with this guy than the leper, the centurion, because you're capable in your own fields. You're highly motivated you may have even authority, managerial authority over others in your workplace, in your family. And so when, if you're in that position, it's really not easy, is it, to throw yourself in complete trust and surrender before the Lord Jesus, is it? Well, can I say, if you don't do that, if you don't know what it's like to humble yourself and throw yourself completely at the mercy of Jesus, to realize where your power ends is actually potentially the, where his power begins. If you don't do that, you will probably never experience all that Jesus wants to do in your life, especially in the place where you are most stuck. Because maybe he's saying to you, you're just trying to solve things in your own power, and I'm not going to start doing stuff until you recognize that you can't, that you have no control. 
Is it a situation that you long for change in? Is it a sin that you want to conquer? Is it someone in your life that you want to see transformed? And you've been doing it all in your own strength. Jesus is saying today through this incident, have enough humility and faith. And you know the two go together, right? You cannot have great faith if you have great faith in yourself. Only those who are able to humble and empty themselves of completely everything can have the faith of the centurion. And only those who have the faith of the centurion will see the kind of things that Jesus wants to do. Wasn't it good that Jesus, through that rhetorical question, drew out the great faith of this centurion, rather than just had gone to the centurion's house and just done it? And Jesus may be posing a question to you today. It might be uncomfortable, it might be difficult, but it's for you to humble yourself, surrender to Him, exercise faith. And you might see Him do things in that situation, in that part of your life that you've never thought possible. See, verse 13, Jesus said to Centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you believed. And His servant was healed at that moment. Well, the last episode with the woman is short and sweet, very sweet in fact. Um, Peter is his friend, his chief disciple, and his mother-in-law was sick with fever. And in those days, without hospitals, without antibiotics, fever could spell death, all sorts of infection. You could get a paper cut and end up dying in those days. And yet what's really short and sweet about this is that this healing wasn't for the crowds. It wasn't for anyone known. It wasn't noticed by others. Plus, you've got to understand, women, even Jewish women, were such outsiders in the world of a Jewish uh, society where it was really a man's world in Jesus' day. See, why would the Lord be bothered about someone like her? This was not a public healing. This wasn't a public setting. This wasn't a public person. But again, we read, of course, Jesus heals her. In verse 15, again, he touches her. An act of compassion. Also, by the way, breaking boundaries of male and females aren't supposed to touch if you're not related, by the way. Um, and he heals her again through touching her. See, Jesus would bother. He would bother about someone like her. He touched her hand and the fever left her. The healing was immediate and complete. This is no long COVID, all right? It happens, it's complete, it's full recovery. But I want you to notice what happens afterwards. And she got up and began to wait on him. The word wait on him is also the word we usually translate as serve or minister. Jesus' healing resulted in restoring her so that she might serve. Now, this isn't Matthew being patriarchal, right? He's not saying, oh, you know, because she's a woman, she has to go and serve. No, no, actually. It's actually what God wants for all of us, by the way, who encounter Jesus. Yeah? Remember the leper was restored so that he could be in full fellowship? Here we get it even a step further. We are restored by Jesus into what we were created to do. And guess what? We were all created to serve. Serve God. Serve others. Is he Christian ministry? The word ministry, minister, just means servant, by the way. Service is never in order to earn God's favor, right? You know that? Service in the Christian life is always a joyful and fitting response. It's a response. God saved me, and this is what he saved me for. The most complete person, by the way, who ever lived, that's Jesus, was the world's greatest servant. 
and those that he saves are restored so that we might serve him and serve with him. And that is where meaning in life actually comes. Okay, let me conclude. When Jesus walked down from the mountaintop experience, it was the same as when God walked down, figuratively, from heaven. Jesus came to meet us in our brokenness and then to do something about it. And his impressive power over sickness is actually a pointer, isn't it? It's a pointer to his power over all that sin has brought into our world. I mean, here he fixes bodies, but one day he will fix everything. Verse 11, he calls it the day of feasting in the kingdom. But before we go, we also need to know how this healing will come about. The healing where Jesus will fix everything, where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Um, Look again with me at verse 16 and 17. Verse 16. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, I want you to focus on that quote in verse 17. It's from Isaiah 53. It's about the promised suffering servant, a mysterious figure in Isaiah that we know is completely fulfilled in Jesus. But in Isaiah, this person would come, the servant would come, and he would die in the place of God's people to save them. The very same passage that quote comes from Isaiah goes on to say in a famous bit, Isaiah 53, 6, you may know the kid's song, or we like sheep have gone astray. Baba do baba. Each of us uh, turned to his own way. Baba do baba. And this is the key bit. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity the sin, the guilt of us all. See, how does healing, whether physical healing in part, as a pointer to ultimate healing, how does it all come about? It comes about through the cross. That was what Isaiah was speaking about. It comes about through Jesus' own suffering. You see, when Jesus came down from the mountain and confronted a suffering world, and he began to heal it, with every healing... It was a reminder to him that he was going to have to pay the ultimate price for it. Nothing came for free. That every time he laid his hands on a leper, and every time he spoke a word to raise the sick or raise the dead, he knew that he himself would have to go to the cross. Because that's how healing happens. Whether the physical healing or the spiritual healing It's because all suffering is ultimately spiritually caused because of sin. And only on the cross, by taking our sin in our place, could Jesus destroy suffering once and for all. And when you see that, and you see that Isaiah quote, it suddenly makes you read all of these healings in a different light, you see, doesn't it? You realize that Jesus was laying the foundation for his own death that he was healing, accruing a payment that he knew he would have to pay off at the end of his life. That every free healing for us was going to cost him. That's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Not only did he have the power to do it, that he had the willingness to do it 
because of what it was going to cost. Friends, that is the Lord. That is God. The God that you worship. If you're a follower of Jesus, you you see how different to the gods of other religions he is. He's not some stuck-up, faraway God or some rich, wealthy politician or celebrity. No, that our Lord would come into our suffering and he would actually suffer with us, but even better than that, he would actually suffer for us. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you're still investigating, some of you are already coming to Alpha, great. If you missed out this time when we run it again, will you make sure you come? Because he's really worth knowing. And I want to end by saying this. What makes the Christian experience of suffering unique among religions is what happens when Christians suffer, by the way. You see, when you know the Lord Jesus, you see that God therefore turns any suffering into an invitation. Did you know that? Whatever you're going through right now, whatever you will go through that's unpleasant or downright painful, God turns into an invitation. Let me tell you about Pastor Tim Keller. Many of you will know him. In 2020, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Now, all cancer is bad, but some you can recover from. Not pancreatic cancer, okay? When he received his cancer diagnosis, the doctor looked at him and said, I want you to realize when it comes to pancreatic cancer, it will kill you. You are going to die from this. The vast majority of patients with pancreatic cancer live less than a year after diagnosis. And so Tim and when his, him and his wife Kathy heard that, that day, he said, when they heard the diagnosis, that day was like a kind of death. But through the grief and the tears, Keller realized that now in his suffering and his facing death, he would now have a chance to put into experience what he has known and actually taught millions of others about Jesus for decades. So I want to read out a couple of quotes that's there for you. He says there, It's one thing to believe God loves you. Another thing to actually feel His love. It's one thing to believe He's present with you. It's another to actually experience his presence. So what he did was he allowed his valley of cancer, he's still alive, by the way, but he's still going to die from pancreatic cancer. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But he allowed this valley to take him deeper. Look at the second quote. He says, I now pray more often, but I also do it more longingly. And what's really amazing is that when you know you've got to have more of God, because there's really no alternative, to our surprise, there is more of God to be gotten. And you say, why didn't I find this out before? And the answer is, you don't feel the same sense of need. Is that where you're at? It may not be cancer, it may be for you or a loved one. But it doesn't have to be, right? Is that where you're at? Though? You're, in, you're in the valley, you're broken and you're wounded from hurt. You're sucker punched by suffering. Or maybe you just feel spiritually adrift. You feel so far away from God. You've got doubts and questions that haven't been answered. You know what? Jesus wants to meet you there. Do you believe that? Jesus wants to meet you there. Not when you get better, not when you get yourself sorted, not when you've received the answers, not when the pain goes. He wants to meet you there, 
there, where you are now, right there, in that pain, in feeling adrift, with the doubts, with the questions, with the, right there. He wants to meet you there, in that valley, because he came for people who are there. So resist the voice that's telling you he doesn't care, that you're too far gone or he's too far away. Instead, when you're there, lean in. Lean in. That's an act of faith. Seek. Surrender. Because then and only then will you taste and see how good he really is. Let's pray and let's get ready to sing. Lord Jesus, wherever we are, whatever valleys we're in, or that we will face, I pray right now that by your Spirit, I can feel right now that your Spirit wants to do business in our hearts, so many hearts, where they are now, Just pray that you would be whispering, speaking exactly what people need to hear. And maybe it's not even words, it's just a presence, just a sense that you are there. And leaning in might be the hardest thing to do, but they know right now it's the only thing that makes sense. And out of that, Lord, would you show yourself to be sweeter, better, more wonderful, more close than ever. Help us to learn the lessons that Tim Keller's learned, that these three people we meet in Matthew 8 have learned. Help us to experience and taste and see your goodness in the valleys. For your glory, in your name we pray, amen.